0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. D-Day, June 6th, 1944, looms large in both popular and historical imaginations as the non or single-defining moment, of the Second World War. Though there were other D-Days launched across multiple theaters throughout Europe, Africa, and the Pacific... Only one indoors is a potent symbol for the war in its entirety. The D Day that saw 156,000 American, British, Canadian, and Allied soldiers storm the Normandy beaches and punch an irreparable hole in Hitler's Atlantic wall. Over the subsequent 75 years, novelists, memoirists, filmmakers, journalists, and historians have followed the Allied combat units from their landing craft across the obstacle strewn sand through the hail of bullets and shells up the high cliffs, and on to the Bocage, Pegasus Bridge, St. glees and the liberation of Paris. In all these narrations, the cross-channel assault appears as an inevitability, the success of Operation Overlord, a fait accompli. Yet as Stephen C. Keffer reveals in Cossack, Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Morgan and the Genesis of Operation Overlord, published by Naval Institute Press, the Normandy landings were anything but a foregone conclusion. Infantry, Keffer observes, did not simply materialize on Omaha, Gold, Sword, and Juneau beaches on the morning of June 6, 1944. Rather, their ambitious amphibious assault was the result of a lengthy and often fraught planning process that began in earnest in early 1943, when British Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Morgan inherited the daunting task of preparing for an Allied return to the continent. Using Morgan and Cossack, the innovative planning and operational organization Morgan built to redirect our gaze away from the face of battle on Omaha Beach and onto the highly complex and contingent context within which Operation Overlord took shape, Keffer forcefully countervails the traditional historiographic narrative. Overlord, Keffer convincingly argues, was a near-run affair in more ways than one. The operation was under-resourced, caused friction between Britain and the United States, and, until the very end, was devoid of a commander vested with the authority to approve its execution. By shedding light on these concerns, Cossack offers a significant contribution to our understanding of that most venerated of D-Days. It is a requisite read for any and all seeking to comprehend the genesis of Operation Overlord and the genius of its primary planner, Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Morgan. Stephen C. Keffer received his M.Lit with distinction in war studies from the University of Glasgow and holds a BA in international relations from the University of Southern California. A former U.S. Marine Corps officer and current independent scholar, Keffer has presented papers on Cossack at the Society for Military History's annual conference and at Normandy 75, hosted by the University of Portsmouth in the UK. It is my pleasure to now welcome him to the podcast. Steve, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Great to meet you. Cossack takes as its object the planning processes that inform the eventual execution of Operation Overlord. As we noted in the introduction to the episode, and as you note in the preface of the book, the D-Day beaches may be the most combed-over beaches in all military history. Yet at the same time, few historians ever make it back across the channel to London or Washington, D.C., where the plans and stratagems acted out on June 6, 1944 were first conceived and debated. What inspired you to examine this oft-overlooked aspect of D-Day?
0: There were a few different nudges. The most immediate was the center of my master's thesis at the University of Glasgow, when I took uh, a year off in 2007, 2006, 2007. And it became the, uh, the conference rattle that was in the middle of the Cossack period in July of 1943 was my thesis. So that that was a major building block of it. A much earlier one was a nudge that I got when reading Carl Deste's book, Decision in Normandy. There was a footnote in that book where he mentioned that uh, Morgan was uh, worthy of more study and, and somebody should take a look at him. And I sort of filed that idea away uh, for, for, for for looking at that. And then the more that I looked at Morgan, I read his, his memoir of the Cossack period, the planning period, and became intrigued with with him as a character, in part because I identified, in a very minor way, with him in that his position there was what could be called high demand, low control. And much of my career was in a similar situation, both in advertising, and then as a nonprofit development director, who responsible for for raising funds for nonprofits. You have a lot of responsibility, but you don't have a lot of ability to compel people to do what you want them to do. So I. I I found him an intriguing character in that way. And then I've always been interested in context. Why does something, how does something happen, not just the fact that it did happen? And so how, how did it occur that 156,000 people went across the beach on June 6, 1944? It's not something that you can get up one morning on May 1st and say, let's go invade Europe. There's an, an immense planning process involved with that. and And so... Exploring that ties into my international relations background that I had my where my where my undergraduate degree is. So the uh, the the agreement between politicians, the agreement between states to do something that's sort of the 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 elements that that attracted me to it at, at the beginning.
1: Yeah, I think the context again, as you noted, gets lost most histories of D Day, and there are there are many. I just read James Holland's Normandy, nineteen forty four it kind of takes a teleological view of Overlord or it positions it as the, you know, the the single defining factor of operations in the European theater as if it were inevitable. You paint a much more nuanced picture that places what is essentially this mythological amphibious assault now within a broader, exceedingly complex context of political, economic, and interpersonal dynamics of international coalitions and just kind of more mundane things that that we don't tend to think about, like the limitations imposed by resource scarcity, that you're not in an infinite system, or what does it take to fight a global war and plan a specific operation? I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about those contexts in which Morgan and the Overlord planners were forced to work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, the essential point is that Overlord was contingent. It was not inevitable. There was a massive debate. About what and strategies, strategies were, were were going to be effective. There was no guarantee the operation would occur until almost the last minute. When, when you look at it from a planning standpoint, December '43 at the Toronto conference, and I think that as you mentioned, some of the more popular histories, the the some of the cable TV shows, do create the impression that it was infinite resourced, it was inevitable. Or it doesn't even address those, they don't even address those issues. They they, they simply present it as the event. And so you don't appre- gain the appreciation for the months and months of training and planning and debating that went on. Contextually, when the Allies, Western Allies met in Casablanca in January of 1943, the situation, the war situation is very different than what it was in July of 43, and again, very different from December of 43. So you're trying to create a plan while the context is changing shape and moving at the same time. So the Allies were in a much stronger, more advantageous position at the end of 1943 than they were when they first started kicking around the idea, if you will, of the invasion of uh, Northwest Europe. And so the plan was modified because of that. The decision makers' confidence level was different because of that. And what they had available, American industry, was finally coming online during 1943. So so their ability to, to respond to various needs and address those shortages became greater during that year. You know, for two of the major members of the Coalition Fighting the Axis Forces, the Soviet Union and China, they had very simple strategies. Resist the invader and drive them out of the country. For the two Western allies, the British Empire and the United States, It was much more complex. They were fighting all of the Axis powers simultaneously in different theaters. They had to support their allies both with material and equipment and by conducting operations that were essentially supportive, directly or indirectly, of Russian and Chinese needs and and situations. And certainly any Western strategy for defeating Germany was going to involve keeping Soviet Union in the war and making sure that they didn't gain a separate peace. So that just as you narrate it, just as one narrates it, that becomes a very complex situation. And when you start thinking of resources, troops, movement, logistics, one of the things that people don't, I think, study enough when it comes to war is the study of logistics and and the supplies and the ongoing reinforcement of, of, of the people you send into battle. And notwithstanding the agreement between Great Britain and the United States that Germany was the principal enemy for the United States, particularly the Pacific War was a constant, had constant demands in terms of resources, was a constant competitor for resources. And that was true both politically and militarily and strategically. For Great Britain, the Mediterranean was a key strategic region, and the United States saw it as secondary, possibly even tertiary. And certainly once the Allies got ashore in, in Italy and, and captured Naples and the Foggia complex of airfields on the Adriatic side, almost straight across from, from Naples. The United States didn't see the point in carrying on operations uh, in Italy beyond that. And so that was, again, an ongoing debate between the two Western allies that that wasn't resolved until really the end of 1943. So that competition ongoing, and again, the United States and Great Britain were essentially uh, equal powers. And so if you think about coalitions today, usually it's the United States as the dominant force. Leading a coalition of people that are taking the lead, as indicated by the United States, that was not the case in 1942-43. There, it was a coalition of equals debating and coming to a mutual understanding, compromise on both sides. It created for Morgan and the Cossack planners a situation where they dealt on a daily basis with uncertainty, uh, and so that 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 made it uh, again a challenging situation. <clears throat> I should insert Cossack, which we're using in. I'm not sure this has been explained, but it's an acronym that Morgan came up with, chief of staff, parentheses, to the Supreme Allied Commander. And so he turned that into the acronym that that became the shorthand both for his title and for the staff that that was doing the work.
1: You've anticipated my next question. Any officer tasked with coming up with a plan for a cross-channel assault and return to the continent would have to wade into the morass you just described. And the officer singled out to do just that was the eponymous central figure of your book, British Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Morgan. Who was Morgan? Why was he chosen? And what vision did he bring to the planning process?
0: Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Morgan was long-serving, obviously long-serving British officer, field artillery trained. So that meant he graduated from Woolwich, which is where engineers and artillery, field artillery officers are are trained, and not Sandhurst, where you you find infantry officers. Chance, basically, as he tells the story, sent him to India right after he was commissioned as a 19-year-old second lieutenant. And so he spent some time in India, about six months. The First World War broke out. He came with the Indian Army back to the Western Front, where he spent four years fighting in all of the major battles that occurred on the Western Front for the British Army. He then went back to India and served there. He, I think, identified himself as a person who was maybe better suited for staff work than line combat leadership. He ended up serving in a number of staff positions during the First World War. And ultimately, at at the last possible moment, he took the test and passed the exam to get into the staff college. At the time, the British had two staff colleges, and, and one was located in England at and the other at Quetta in what is now Pakistan, and still serves as Pakistan's Command and Staff College. And without being able to, get, without getting that ticket, he wouldn't have a career. So he went through that. That gave him access to staff jobs. And he served as many British officers did in a variety of circumstances. So by nineteen forty, he was the brigade commander of the unarmored components of the first British Armored Division. And he went to France as, as their brigade commander. And one indication, just as a as a story, one indication of his the development of his ability to, if not disobey, orders that seemed inappropriate or silly to him, his ability to reinterpret them. He was ordered in May of 1940 to break through the encircled uh, the, the encircling German army to join the British forces that were trapped in Dunkirk so that he could be evacuated. He thought that was nons- nonsensical, so he instead <laughs> pulled his unit back, first to Cherbourg and then on to Brest, where they were evacuated as part of Operation Ariel, and not Operation Diamond, not the, not the Dunkirk uh, evacuation, but the other one that occurred. A little bit later in the month, and he brought out 1,500 Canadians that weren't initially uh, attached to his unit as well, but but he rounded them up along the way. So from there, he went to command of a division, then ultimately command of First British Corps as the British Army reorganized itself and tried to or and prepared itself for defending the the, the British Islands against the anticipated German invasion. Then as First Corps commander, as 1942 rolled around, Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa was, was in the cards, and First Corps was put under the command of Eisenhower to be part of that operation. That led him to get the assignment of planning an amphibious assault in Spanish Morocco, anticipating that the Germans might invade Spain, seize Gibraltar, to, to force the Straits of Gibraltar to remain open they would see Spanish Morocco, and Morgan's two-division corps was assigned that task. So that introduced him to amphibious warfare planning, or amphibious assault planning. And during this time, obviously, he was also working with Eisenhower's command, so he was working with a joint British-American command, which was a rarity in those days. From there, he was assigned a couple of other amphibious assault operations that didn't take place or that Ultimately, were conducted by someone else. But his divisions were ultimately taken from him to be fed into the North African battle. So he was left with a headquarters structure and some time on his hand. And when he went back to, to England, he was told he was going to, the corps was going to be reconstituted and he was going to train troops to be part of the eventual cross channel attack whenever and wherever it occurred. At that point, he wrote a letter to his old friend, Hastings Pug Ismay. They served together for a long time in India. Ismay was now the military secretary to Churchill and associated with the British chief of staff. And he wrote, Morgan wrote a letter saying, someone ought to be put in charge to organize things because I know enough about amphibious operations to know that we have to be thinking about a specific beach, a specific time, a specific, specific amount of forces in order to get the training right, to, to do the job the way it, it needs to be done. So someone should be put in charge to do this. Ismay invited him down to London to talk about it. He ultimately, he, Morgan, ultimately talked himself into the job of being that person. Because at the same time, as part of the Casablanca conference, there was an agreement that a staff headed by a chief of staff should organize and look at the various plans and ideas and schemes that had been put forward since 1940 about crossing the channel. And so those two ideas met in Ismay's office. And, and so that's how Morgan, uh, the short version of how Morgan got the job. It He was the available officer. There was nothing uh, in his resume or his CV that would suggest that he was an amphibious assault expert or that he had worked uh, with the Americans. And, you know, he was just much like his deputy, his American deputy Barker, who, who Barker was asked, how did you become another field of artillery officer, and how did you become uh, the operations officer for the European Theater of Operations organization the U.S. Army had? He said, because I was standing there and there wasn't anybody else. <laughs> and much the same can be said for Morgan. He was he was the available officer. But he had staff training and he had a background in the Indian Army that encouraged, whether it's out-of-the-box thinking or or the unconventional approach, those uh, attributes certainly helped as he organized things and went forward.
1: Pausing briefly on Morgan's service with the Indian Army, it's perhaps revealing that Montgomery, Pug Ismay, as you mentioned, and indeed many of the other shining stars in the British Army's Second World War pantheon, like William Slim, served in some capacity on the subcontinent. Did Morgan benefit from the fact that, you know, within the British Empire in the 1920s and 30s, India and especially along the northwest frontier, was one of the few places where, as an officer, you could gain real-world field experience and train for and, you know, perhaps participate in actual combat?
0: The British Army, I think, has been fairly criticized as being essentially a colonial police force in comparison with the German and French armies that, that they didn't have a lot of practice with commanding multi-core armies in a, in a European context. And so the staff work wasn't necessarily as good going into the Second World War, and, and there were other deficiencies. But as, as, as you suggest, I think the, the benefit to, to officers, particularly those who spent more than one tour with the Indian Army, was the fundamental soldiering, practical soldiering, experience that they got, as opposed to garrison in metropolitan Britain, which would be maybe too close to home, too rigid, too artificial in the, in the construction of exercises, where in India and Northwest Frontier, it was a little bit more, I don't want to trivialize it, but to say the, the, the fundamentals, the blocking and tackling, if you will, mm. of, of, of being an officer, being in the field were everyday occurrences. So I think that there was a, a sharper edge to that. For me as well, particularly for, for when you consider Morgan, he led Indian Army troops as well. So he didn't just have British Army units that were attached to the Indian Army. He also commanded Indian Army units for a period of time, as well as being on the staff. So he worked in a multicultural environment. He worked with people who would have different viewpoints and, and that he would have to work with and perhaps be a little bit more diplomatic and a little less authoritarian, which I think also played into his personality. And so that ability to see a larger picture outside of a, of a small foggy island, I think helped expand his worldview and his, his ability to, to understand other cultures. Not that, he, not that you can equate the Indian subcontinent with the United States Army. But I I think that kind of experience enhanced his personality and facilitated his ability to to do the kind of things that he did at at Cossack.
1: Let's drill down now on that last point and really examine what Morgan was able to accomplish with Cossack. As you stress throughout the book, Morgan was cognizant that Cossack's success and really the success of the planning process for Overlord as a whole was contingent upon it being a truly international organization. Uh, Yet, as you mentioned earlier, the British and the Americans were co-equal powers that frequently pulled in opposite directions. You observe in the book that there was a sharp distinction between British and American preconditions and aims for a return to the continent. What were the differences and how did they affect Morgan in the planning process?
0: The British and the Americans certainly, as, as you point out, had different points of view about what the strategy should be for the defeat of Germany, and for the re-entry into the continent. For the British, you can see throughout the period, even in the briefing documents and papers that they presented prior to the Tehran Conference, which was in late November 1943, they kept referring to basically the strategy of closing the ring around Germany, tightening a blockade, the combined bomber offensive, which was essentially bombing German cities, and encouraging the Russians and hoping for continued Russian successes, creating a, a precondition that would be similar to what Germany experienced in 1918, where civilian unrest and a collapse, a sudden collapse of, of society enabled the Allies to move towards Germany with minimum resistance all after four years of, of war. And they thought that the same thing, the same set of circumstances could be created against Hitler's Germany and so they saw operations in the mediterranean and everything else as part of that establishment of those preconditions and consequently they wanted to engage what i call a -a picador strategy of, of engaging the germans around the periphery of occupied europe with the object of dispersing german forces as widely and broadly as possible the americans wanted to concentrate forces for the earliest possible assault ac- across the channel, some somewhere across the channel, into occupied Europe, defeat the main force there, the main German force there, and drive towards the Ruhr and ultimately toward the industrial heartland of Germany, and then also t- eventually towards Berlin. So rather than disperse German forces, they believed they should concentrate their forces, allied forces, and seek out in engage in a decisive victory in the theater of operations that was the primary theater of operations. That continued operations in secondary theaters like the Mediterranean took too much time and were not going to be conclusive. And the more time you took, the more advantageous it was for the Soviet Union, for the Red Army to advance westward toward Western Europe. As another historian has said, they didn't want to get into the situation of trading the liberation of Bulgaria for the liberation of Belgium uh the, the the united states saw the value of western europe and wanted to make sure that there was an allied army on the continent advancing towards germany at the same time the soviets were that created a dynamic where the americans kept insisting that overlord had to have priority and the british kept saying in the fullness of time we will cross the channel but let's make sure it's a success and of course there's a couple of parenthetical components to that as well. One, the amphibious assault that was the necessary thing for, for Overlord to succeed was essentially an untried concept prior to World War II and the most risk-filled concept. And particularly when you think about Overlord, it, it was not only a, a, an amphibious assault against a prepared position, but prior to that, they, they conducted an airborne assault at night behind enemy lines. So those are just about the two most risky Operations that you, you can conceive of to launch a campaign, so it's understandable the British would want a to not do that unless they had to, and b make sure that everything was that could be done what was done to make sure it was it was going to be a success. That was one issue. The second issue, I don't know if it's the specter of Dunkirk per se, but certainly after Dunkirk, the British pre-war assumptions and plans were annulled. They went out the window. The way they thought the war was going to go was not the way the war was going to go. And so they had to scramble and make up a strategy in the middle of a war when they were essentially on the defensive, on the back foot. And I think part of what you see is in the back of the minds of British generals, a doubt about their ability to defeat the Germans. Do we have the equipment? Are our people trained well enough particularly for the Army, the British Army, to engage Germans and be successful. And certainly the record of the British Army, 1940 to 1942, has fewer victories against the Germans than defeats. And that history, I think, would make any commander or chief of staff cautious about the employment of that arm. And that, of course, goes back, and this is something that I ended up cutting out of the book, the decisions by the British in the 1930s when, when they started to rearm, the British army was third. The emphasis understandably was placed on, in terms of funding and training that was placed on the, on the Royal Air Force and, and the Royal Navy. Those, that, those were correct decisions given what the resources were the British had, but it meant that the British army was not as well equipped and not as large. And they didn't have a commitment. What Michael Howard called the continental commitment wasn't finalized until after the, German invasion or occupation of Czechoslovakia at the end of 1938, so the British Army was late to, to recognize that it was going to have to fight on the continent. All of those factors, I think, combined to make the British look for an alternative to, to a cross-general assault, assault, and, you know, there may be an American way of war, and, and part of that may be engaging, seeking out and engaging the main enemy force. Both sides wanted to re enter the continent, but under what set of circumstances, when, and to what, and with what goal in mind, I think were the differences.
1: Not to belabor the point, but I find it fascinating to think about the extent to which the British blockade mentality or picador mentality, as you called it, influenced and constrained their approach to land warfare.
0: I another sort of uh, aside to that would be certainly as a result of the First World War. Great Britain was very sensitive to the idea of taking large scale combat losses. And so they imagined a war of machines, a war of technology, hence the bomber campaign, hence the oil in 80, hence the search for allies. And also fighting on periphery, because combat in Northwest Europe in in the mid 20th century was was not a casually averse situation. You were going to be taking casualties there. So that, that would be another reason why the British would prefer not to, to, to have to fight their way across South, Northwest Europe if they could avoid it. But yes, I think that, that you know, the, the, the British always have one eye on the sea sort of thing. So, so they, are, they are a maritime power and power projection on land is, is, is something that, that's why you have allies that, you know, the British use the allies for that. If you look back at even, you know, to the Napoleonic era going forward.
1: Now, Morgan's main ally in your telling is American officer Ray Barker, who really stands out as the abutment which anchored the bridge between the British and the Americans on the far side of the pond. But can you speak a little bit more about who Barker was and how integral his relationship with Morgan truly was?
0: I think it was essential. I think the relationship was essential. Ray Barker, unfortunately, didn't leave a lot of a paper trail in terms of of Personal memoir and things like that, so it's a little bit harder to piece his career together. But he he enlisted in the in the cavalry. He was I think four years older than Morgan. He was commissioned through an officer candidate school as into as a second lieutenant. So he didn't go to West Point. He rode with uh, Pershing in the punitive uh, expedition against Pancho Villa. So he had some early field experience. He served on so he served on the frontier as well. He was a field artillery officer when uh, as well. So there was some common background. He was a student of British history and had spent time in between the wars visiting Great Britain. So he had some sense of, of the British nation, the British people. In 1942, he was in, he was commanding a, a, an artillery regiment in California, was sent to join what was called the Special Observers Group, the American organization, the American army organizations established in, in London as sort of a liaison with, with the British command. That, turned into what had the cumbersome name of ETO USA European Theater of Operations US Army or ETOUSA and it was a small group and he even though he was a field artillery officer he was made the the G3 or the operations officer tasked with organizing what was the anticipated buildup of American forces into Great Britain. So he was tasked with dealing with the the receiving end, making sure that there there was a place to billet them, to train them, to supply them, and so forth. As Cossack was established, General Andrews, who was the commander of the Etusa, had a conversation with Brooke, General Alan Brooke, who was the the chairman of the Chiefs of staff for, for the British about who the american representative on that staff would be barker since 1942 as the operations officer had worked with the british planners on an informal again ad hoc basis and he and a british major general two-star general john sinclair created a plan on their own initiative called skyscraper and that was the first approach first cut if you will at a realistic plan for for crossing the channel before that there was the roundup plan that talked about crossing the pad de calais but it it never really got to the point where it was a real plan it was more of a an outline of an outline uh situation so sinclair and barker sat down in between january and march 1943 and wrote skyscraper which posited a concentrated landing in the beta Seine in the normandy area and identify that it would take about roughly nine divisions in the assault to overcome what they call determined resistance. And prior plans, even those that had anticipated going ashore before a German collapse, always wanted to know what the minimum force would be against weakening resistance. So this was a totally different approach. So Barker had looked at the situation, looked at the problem, knew the people far better than Morgan did, who were in the ministries and, and the Army headquarters, the British Army headquarters, combined operations and so forth, and so was the logical person to be the, the American representative there. And they hit it off immediately. Barker comes across as being much more direct, much more blunt, where Morgan, certainly when you read Morgan's two books, he sometimes takes a long, the long way around to get to the point. Very flowery in his, in his, in his, in his language, very entertaining. But sometimes more indirect. And so I think the two complemented each other, but they also saw in each other two very competent professionals. and as as Barker said, Morgan, he was a straight shooter. You knew he was going to tell you the truth. He wasn't a careerist. He wasn't a person who who was looking out for for his own benefit or his own advancement. And that was certainly true of Barker as well. He was told that when he went when he was going to be assigned to London, he his Promotion to the Brigadier General was going to be delayed, and Barker said he didn't care as long as he got to go over the fighting. Mm.
1: So,
0: two very interesting personalities that, that worked together.
1: Going back to Skyscraper, once Barker's hypothetical operation was on the table, what trajectory did the planning process take?
0: The skyscraper was, again, uh, on, on the initiative of Barker and Sinclair and was sent to a group called the Combined Commanders which was an informal organization made up of the Commander-in-Chief of Home Forces, the British Army in the British Isles, Air Officer Commanding, Fighter Command, and the Officer Commanding, the Navy Enforcement, CNC and Enforcement. Three British officers who obviously had other duties, but were tasked by the British Chiefs of Staff to examine plans for a potential cross-channel assault. They looked at skyscraper sent it to the chiefs of staff who didn't respond. Um, That would have been March of 43. So that just was as Cossack was being formed. Morgan, as head of Cossack, was given three tasks. One was to prepare a plan for an eventual operation as early. The initial language was as early as possible in 1944 to cross the channel. The second addressed the British ongoing hope for German collapse so that he would be prepared to come up with a plan to move whatever forces he had at hand to get across the channel as soon as the Germans collapsed and and to reenter the continent without resistance. And that became Operation Rankin, and there was some value to to Rankin as well. Then the third was to conduct a feint in the channel approach as if there was going to be an amphibious assault. And then withdraw in the hope that they could draw the German air force up into into battle and, and and inflict casualties on on German fighters. And that was something that the British thought was a good idea. One of the one of the nuggets that they got from the Dieppe disaster that they thought they had inflicted heavy casualties on the German air force then, and they hoped they could do similar things over over and over again to attrite the the German air force. They were wrong, and the Germans didn't bite. But Again, not everything you don't always know, everything you need to know in the middle of a war. So, skyscraper was sort of something Barker had a knowledge of. It was certainly part of the paperwork that Morgan looked at when he was given all the, the stack of documents and said, make something coherent out of this. Morgan then redefined what Cossack was. He said to the chiefs of staff that. For this to work, one, as you mentioned, it has to be a, a multinational staff from the start. It has to be an operation that is actually, could, we have to act as if the operation is already underway. We can't just write a plan that's going to be subject to debate like all the other plans have been. We have to start moving forward. And we have to have is the as actually the embryo of the Supreme Commander's operational staff. So that even though I don't have a commander, when the commander shows up, that commander has everything he needs to run an operational headquarters and run the campaign. So Morgan, at that point, was inventing a concept or uh, for a, for a, a planning staff that was going to turn into an operational staff for a commander who didn't exist for an operation that wasn't planned or wasn't approved. Um, so that's, <laughs> there's some variables there that, that they worked through. So as they worked through the, the development of a plan that it boiled down to two arguments for a cross-general attack, one using the Pot de Calais, the other Normandy. General Paget, who was the head of the home forces, the, the British Army, the British Isles, wasn't sure that it would succeed, but if it, but if it was going to be tried, it should be tried at the Pot de Calais. Brooke, the head of the chiefs of staff, agreed. Most of the Germans also agreed that that was the likely place. Mountbatten, who, uh, Admiral Mountbatten, who was the commander of uh, combined operations, the commandos, believed that Normandy was a better choice. Morgan was hesitant to, to make a draconian decision uh, on his own. It's not clear why. I think perhaps he wanted to preserve options it's the kind of decision a commander would make. So I think Morgan hesitated to do it in his stead. I think he was also sensitive to the the political dynamics of having to work with Mountbatten, having to work with Padgett, having to work with everyone who was a stakeholder at that point. And so consequently, at Mountbatten, I think, cut the Gordian knot and said, let's hold a conference and sort this out. And that was... Operation Rattle, which again, I think was is an important milestone along the way. It was up in Largs, Scotland, near Glasgow in the summer, or first part of July 1943. And it pulled roughly 70 officers together, all of whom had something to do with planning for a cross-general assault. And everybody expressed their opinion. And there were about what they could do, what they couldn't do, how it should work. And there were 23 briefing papers delivered over three days, three and a half days, taking everyone through in a sequential way the assault from assembly to getting ashore and moving inland and how, how it was going to work, what was needed, what was resolved, what needed to be resolved, what the open questions were, what the uh, problems yet to be, to, to be encountered were. And at that, at that conference, there was, there were a, a series of things happened. One, it was agreed that Cossack was actually the lead agency that, that was going to be in charge. It wasn't going to be combined operations. It wasn't going to be the combined commanders. It was going to be Cossack. Two, they agreed that it was Normandy and not cotta And three, they introduced the concept of the amphibious or the uh, artificial harbors, the mulberries which solved the, up to that point, intractable problem of needing harbor facilities to supply the army that got ashore. The LST and supply over the beach was a concept that hadn't been invented yet. So the only thing they could do is try and seize a harbor. Dieppe and Torch both showed that seizing a harbor by direct assault was a challenging proposition that that usually didn't work. So they were in the circular argument of we need a harbor, we can't get a harbor, the harbor's gonna be well defended, the beach that we could land at isn't near the harbor, but we need a harbor. And finally they, they resolved it by inventing the the bear. At Rattle, the decisions were taken that made it clear it was going to be an assault on Normandy. They already had a date of May 44. They were then able to take the plan and write it and meet the deadline for delivery to the chiefs of staff of mid-July 1943. That then went to the, the Quebec conference in mid-August 1943 for the initial approval of, of that outline plan for, the, for what was at that point Operation Overlord.
1: One thing that I found exceedingly interesting about the planning process was that Morgan and Cossack were tasked not only with actually planning for what the actual assault was going to look like and maybe the initial month after the Atlantic Wall was cracked, but also that they planned for not only winning, winning the battle, but winning the peace and what yeah. the post-war world was going to look like. And you mentioned one of the options that he was tasked with planning for was this Rankin plan. It seems like that would be a distraction But in the end, it appears like it was a a beneficial distraction in that it allowed Morgan to innovate a new connection between combat and civilian affairs in in modern military thought. Is that a fair assessment? It
0: is. I think that it ended up being a compliment to Overlord. And as he realized, as he was working through Rankin, which, again, Rankin was the reentry into the continent Without an invasion because the German forces had either withdrawn or had become demoralized. So as he said, the result was going to be the same either way. You would, you would get to the situation that Rankin version C. There were three versions of Rankin, but you, you get to the result that Rankin for, foresaw either with the invasion and the campaign or as a result of German collapse, but the situation was going to exist either way. So it, it forced them to think about the day after the day after tomorrow. What do we do after we win? What what is the situation going to look like? What do we have to do? What's next? And so it was contingency planning, but it was also projecting out on a longer timeline the circumstances they were gonna to have to deal with. And and yeah, you're right. As as a result of that, they developed a civil affairs approach that was different than what had occurred in North Africa and in Italy and was it was ultimately more effective and also laid the groundwork for discussions about post-war Europe at the highest level interestingly uh, what what Cossack developed as a as concepts for, for post-war Europe in large part were, were what was was agreed on uh, in in September 1944 and again it, at the second uh, Quebec conference and again at Yalta very Very similar concepts, as was the uh, the idea of the America the Allied armies uh, under Eisenhower stopping at the Elbe river in, 40, in april forty five and, and, and meeting the Germans there. that was uh, the boundary that Cossack had posited as what the boundary would be between soviet and and Western Allied forces, so it played a a major role. Not only for Cossacks thinking, but also with the American uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff and their approach to looking at post-war Europe, and to a certain extent, also the the British uh, thoughts about post-war Europe. Although, frankly, I think the British were still more focused on the Mediterranean.
1: The British, and in particular, Churchill's obsession with the Mediterranean really confounded me as I was reading (laughs) smacks of an attempt by Churchill to exercise the demons of Gallipoli. Or to finally prove that he could find the "quote unquote" soft underbelly of Europe, as it were, right.
0: And and his fascination and the British fascination, but primarily Churchill's fascination with bringing Turkey into the war, I find remarkably puzzling. That the the, the, ju- the rationale or the justification for the the operations in the Eastern Mediterranean and and pursuing Italy and getting into the Balkans is, is to convince Turkey to join the war, and I still don't. I've looked at it a number of different ways and the value of Turkey as an ally, as opposed to a friendly neutral escapes me. Um, it, And I think you're right. I think it's a, a worldview that, that goes back to 1910, 1914 uh, on the part of Churchill. I mean, it was true that Turkey could serve as a, as a, a base for airfields and, and for potential operations, but It would have been a net drain on allied resources and the targets that they could hit from Turkey. They could also hit from the Fogia complex of bases in in southern Italy. So, and then nobody asked the question, why, what, what's in it for Turkey? Why would Turkey that has the Dardanelles, has the strategic location, not act in its own best interest, which would be to be neutral and to enjoy the benefits of being a victor's friend? So. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it was a motivation, at least in part, by Churchill's strategic view, which was informed largely by the First World War in, in his experiences uh, with Gallipoli and the Dardanelles.
1: Did Churchill's and the British chief of chiefs of staff's noncommittal or constant equivocation on Overlord cause any planner burnout? D- did Morgan? Barker and the Cossack staff constantly revisit a depressing feeling that they were just pushing paper around and not planning for an operation that was valued by the COS or that was actually going to take place?
0: I think inside Cossack, in terms of the planners working on a day-to-day basis, there was more than enough to do to keep them busy. And Morgan, I think, was able to convey to the planners that that this was an operation that, that was going to happen. Uh, I mean, he came back, or he pulled the Cossack staff together after the uh, conference in Quebec, and you know, and he said, you know, we're off and nothing can stop us. Whether that was a sort of Henry V moment where whatever he believed privately, that was what he was going to say publicly to his staff, I, I think that there may have been some of that. I think from Morgan personally, there was a very clear low point, and he had the amazing opportunity to go to Washington for what turned into five weeks in October of 43 at the invitation of General Marshall, the U.S. Army Chief of Staff. It was thought at the time that Marshall might be the Supreme Allied Commander, and so it would be a good idea for Morgan and he to get to know each other. Morgan might be the Chief of Staff to uh, Marshall as as the Supreme Allied Commander. Toward the end of that period, Trafford v. Mallory, the the commander of fighter command, came over to have discussions with with his American counterparts in the Pentagon. And he brought with him news that Churchill had sent a memo to the British chiefs saying that essentially, because of recent events in the Mediterranean, we may have opportunities that can be pressed. And therefore, we should uh, not feel that we are committed unilaterally or unequivocally to the Normandy operation, and then perhaps we can delay Overlord for two or three months, take advantage of these wonderful opportunities in the Mediterranean, and let's keep this to ourselves, but but let's examine what that could be. And that was a a result in part of an interpretation of Russian comments made at a foreign minister's conference at the end of October '43 saying that they welcomed news of Overlord, but would be interested if something could be done more more quickly, sooner, and possibly in the Mediterranean. So at that point, Morgan wondered what he was doing. Why was I there wasting my time? If there's going to be a, re- a recanting of agreements, if Normandy is going to be delayed, if it's delayed more than a couple months it's probably not going to happen in 1944 because you get outside of what they call the invasion season crossing the channel the v the v weapons are going to start coming into play they knew about the v1 and v2 they they had a rough idea of when they were so all of these factors were weighing on morgan's mind and that was a really hard period for him and i think i think two things happened one i think he just put his head down and, and went back to work and secondly the end of that month well the end of the next month was the Tehran conference where Stalin famously asked when briefed about the Overlord operation said he said who's the commander and the response was there well we don't have one yet and then and Stalin replied "was saying well then this operation means nothing and you know 5 days later Eisenhower was notified that he was the supreme allied commander for the Overlord operation so it It was a low point, but it was followed very relatively quickly by confirmation. And you can read in the Cossack death minutes that as he got results from the Tehran conference, he said that we can now say with confidence that this operation will go forward on the date scheduled. It's no longer a planning exercise. So the Tehran conference settled it in, in, in Morgan's mind. And then, of course, by... Right after that, things really took off with uh, the expansion of, of Cossack and then its uh, evolution into Shafe, the Supreme Headquarters, the Allied Expeditionary Force, and the arrival of Eisenhower and Montgomery. So uh, it, things gathered pace rather quickly right after that.
1: I was also reading Craig L. Simon's book, Neptune, about mm. the naval component to Operation Overlord. and. There's just a throwaway line about Eisenhower and I think, you know, a couple, maybe a few paragraphs about Eisenhower, but pivots Eisenhower as this keystone that held this whole thing together. And obviously we've been talking a lot about Morgan and Morgan's planning and all the lead up that went into actually making something that Eisenhower could then inherit and then tweak, but basically run with, and that was ready to go for this. Was there any friction between Morgan and Eisenhower or between Morgan and Eisenhower's staff? And how did Morgan ultimately translate Cossack and its work into shape?
0: Morgan had worked with Beetle Smith, Eisenhower's chief of staff, back in early 43 as part of the, the Operation Torch and had developed an excellent working relationship. They also met again, Smith and Morgan met again in Washington when, when uh, Morgan was there in October of, of 43. Morgan came away from that trip with the, the full support of General Marshall. In fact, Marshall wrote a letter to Deavers, uh, General Devers who had taken over from General Andrews as commander of the ETO USA and asked Devers to give Morgan his full support because he knew exactly what he, Marshall, wanted at the end of, the, of their time together. Morgan got along very well with Eisenhower. There wasn't that much of a problem. The problem was actually the transition from the planning group that had been Cossack and the importation of all the people who came up from the Mediterranean with Eisenhower and with Montgomery, who felt they had more combat experience. And so there was a, a breaking in period as they got to know each other. And the other challenge was that Brooke and Montgomery felt that that Morgan had not held up the British end very well and had basically sold out to the Americans. And so when Morgan discovered that with Eisenhower's arrival, he was not going to be the chief of staff of the operation, he was going to be an assistant chief of staff to, to Beetle Smith, and he totally understood that Beetle Smith was already Eisenhower's chief of staff, and that's a Interpersonal relationship that 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 doesn't change between a commander and his chief assistant. He could either be an assistant to Beetle Smith or he could take over a corps command. But Montgomery didn't want him to be a corps commander with him in in Northwest Europe, so he would have been a corps commander in Italy. Mm-hmm. And Morgan felt he didn't know that much about combat in Italy, and he had kind of a paternal interest in Overlord, and so he stayed and and, and became what. Beulah Smith said, described as the man I would not willingly do without. So he he was an essential part of the of the chafe command structure and, and staff, and really contributed substantially to that. So the the uh, challenge Morgan reward were on, on uh, dealing with his British confreres, not his American compatriots.
1: Two people separated by a common language and a, a common common history of near animus, <laughs> I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. There, uh, there there's a remarkable amount of anglophobia in the american army at at the time you can see that in some of the the pentagon planners and and their just inherent distrust of anything british and and it was repaid by by some of the british as well who felt the americans were sharp dealers and had a knack for showing up at the last minute after much of the hard fighting had had already been uh, experienced so it it was not a relationship that was all sweetness and light i guess would be the one way to say that
1: Overlord, as we know, was a success. The Allies established a lodgment in northwestern France, took Paris, and eventually drove on to the Elbe, just as Morgan and Cossack envisioned. What, in your estimation, is Morgan's and Cossack's legacy? Is there anything that modern military and even civilian planners who deal with the aftermath of war, any anything that they might take away from a look at the planning process for Operation Overlord?
0: That's a wonderful question. I think, I think there is. What I think could be teased out of, of the Cossack experience is one, being willing to consider unconventional options, not to be tied to a book, a way of always doing things, to look for answers, even though the person you're looking to for the answer may not be the, the duty expert. There's ways to find answers people who have answers to problems that aren't necessarily the person tasked with finding finding the answer or producing the answer. I think that the way Morgan ran his staff, which was with full trust and open communication, what we would call probably transparency. Uh, he called his staff together to let them know what was going on in detail. He didn't keep that information within a small body at the top where and then letting what he called the pick and shovel boys work in darkness. He looked for ideas and information from the bottom as well as the top. He, he would accept a good idea wherever it, it came from. Master communicator always took the broadest view. That, so he brought in the political and the diplomatic and the civil affairs components, not just the, the military logistic components. He added a political component, representatives from the State Department and the Foreign Office. He added a foreign government section so they could communicate with the governments in exile. He thought through a lot of problems that were second order, third order problems. It wasn't just let's get across the channel. No, let's how do we get to Berlin? And then what happens after that? And what happens along the way? And, and these are not countries that are going to be conquered, these are countries that are going to be liberated. So what about the governments? What about the people in the countries? What about the more than 20 million displaced people that we're going to have to deal with. That's not only a moral issue, but but that, that, that's a supply logistic and, and security issue. So all of those ways of thinking about a problem in the broadest possible terms, I think, w- would be part of the legacy. I think also the insistence on it being a true multinational coalition that all the coalition partners have essentially an equal voice. And, and so all the concerns of all the partners are at least heard and understood before decisions made. So I I think those in in, in the broadest possible terms uh, would be the legacy much more than this was the wire diagram that represents their organization and that's now a template. That certainly is not the case.
1: Steve, I'm mindful of your time and you've been very generous with us today. One final question before we let you go. Now that Cossack has gone to press and is on our bookshelves, what project do you anticipate working on next?
0: That's a question I have had to confront in a number of guises. I have taken a look at two or three different topics. One, we live in France, and, and so I was considering taking a look at what the history of the occupation was in this particular part of France. There have been other books on that subject, but not for this area. And so the question would be, is, would, would that be different? How, and if so, in what way from from other books that have covered that in detail. There are as many books almost about the occupation of France as there are about the invasion. Right now, though, I am settling on an examination of the history of the combined chiefs of staff. I think that's a logical step from considering Cossack that was a special staff created by the chief, by the combined chiefs of staff, the British and American military chiefs, to a consideration of How did the combined chiefs of staff work and how did they direct the war? There have been a couple books on that, but I think there's plenty of room to explore and study that and reach some conclusions about not only the mechanisms, but the personality and and the decision-making that had to go on at that level. That brings, again, the military, the political, the industrial, and and also post-war foreign policy objectives for two, if not three superpowers together in, in one story. So I think that could be very interesting.
1: We'll have to have you back on once you you pick a topic. Um, I'll I'll look forward to that. Well, Steve, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today.
0: I I appreciate the time. Thank you.
1: And to all our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Scott Lipkowitz saying thanks for listening.